What's up, gang? Today is Wednesday, September 30th. Damn, we're already in October almost. 2015. My name is Luke Thomas, and this is the Promotional Malpractice Live Chat. Thank you very much for joining me. I greatly appreciate it. Today on the podcast, a lot of the same uh, topics because it's a very interesting week. It's UFC 192, Daniel Cormier defending the title, the UFC light heavyweight title, against Alexander Gustafson which would automatically raise a lot of conversations about John Jones. Then on top of it, yesterday, John Jones happens to strike a plea bargain with a local prosecutor in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and is uh, free to return to the octagon. So it's a lot of just, um, it was it was things you had expected to discuss with now an extra emphasis and now news boost and relevancy that maybe wasn't there before. So we'll get to all of that. Any questions you have or comments you may have, about anything else in the sport of mixed martial arts, or I don't know, maybe anything else altogether, uh, you can get your comments in on MMAfighting.com. That's where this post is embedded. That's where you can get everything in. Uh, please give this a thumbs up. Share this whenever you see this, uh, you know, on Twitter, on Facebook, anywhere you can. Just let folks know about it. It's, it's your participation, both with the uh, questions and comments, as well as the sharing, that makes this something uh, kind of special. As you can see, Ala Madrid. Um, they're playing today, and you know what time it is, man. Come on. You know what time it is. Uh, all right, but with that out of the way, oh, so I wanted to try something new today. We'll see how this goes. So here we go. You know, you got to keep it all in the MMA family, right? So this is Monster Energy Ultra Sunrise. Zero calories, zero sugar. It's got, like, decorations on the can. Monster logo on the on the tip here. Let's see how this goes, shall we? Smells orangey. Boy, that is enough to make your eyes water. <clears throat> wow. Oof. Tastes like a mixed drink. All right. Well, if I get hammered off this accidentally, blame Monster. Let's get to these questions, shall we? All right. First up on the docket today. I'm in a good mood today, y'all. I don't know why. Maybe because I got a good night's sleep. For once, I'm doing a live chat. I got a good night of sleep last night, huh? See how much better my mood is? All right, first question. Out of left field, but we'll take it. Was the entire Fedor negotiation process complete BS? So from what I can gather, Emelianenko was probably approached sometime in early 2015 to fight for Sakaki Barrow's group for a reported $2.5 million. Then in July, Fedor announced he was coming out of retirement and a big deal that he was negotiating, even though the, all the time Coker and Sakaki Barrow knew he was just going to show up at the Dynamite show and announce the deal there. Is this pretty much how the entire thing really went down? There was no legitimate UFC negotiations. Coker even said he never tried for Fedor, which makes sense in retrospect since Fedor obviously had this worked out a long time ago with Sakaki Barra because you don't just plan an MMA promotion at the last minute. Sakaki Barra had to have had Fedor locked in a long time ago, and they used MMA media to hype it using the Fedor to UFC angle. Um, my understanding, and I think the best reporting on this to date publicly has been from Dave Meltzer over at the Wrestling Observer Newsletter, 
that there was a, a sincere UFC effort to get him, and they made a substantial fin- financial offer. Excuse me, but in the end, um, they uh, sorry, I'm reading a weird message here. They couldn't match the two and a half million or some of the other conditions that um, the Japanese could. So, look, if you're asking, were was the MMA media used to facilitate? This negotiation, probably. But if Sakaki Barra did that, he ain't the first. Strike Force has done it. Coker's done it. UFC's done it. World Series of Fighting has done it. Everyone does it. That's not, you know, it's often why I personally don't like reporting on stuff like those kinds of news. A, because it's not really my beat anyway. But B, I just, it's like, um, if you don't follow any of the soccer news, and I'm not going to go into a big soccer thing here, but the transfer news and this guy to that team and this team wants this guy. It's so deeply unreliable generally. I think across sports, maybe to a lesser extent with the NFL because some of those processes have to be above board and uh, publicly stated. But anyway, I just mean, I just find all that stuff really hard to follow, really hard to know what's what, how much is being publicly let known just for purposes of being used and consumed by the masses to create or uh, interest or deter interest. It's very hard to follow. I, I think the UFC generally tried to make an offer for him and probably thought it was very competitive. I think the way Dave Meltzer put it was that the 2.5 was not the initial number all along, but that it was a final offer from Sakaki Barra to surpass what the UFC was giving him. Um, but in the end, you know, did he have his mind made up probably from day one? That was my guess all along. I was not right about Fedor because I thought he would go to Bellator. So I had that part wrong. But the part that I kind of feel like I got right was that, you know, man, every time I saw him at a Bellator event and the one before Dynamite, I saw him at the Kimbo Slice event, he had Jerry Millen with the, Jerry Millen with him the whole time. And I mentioned that on Ariel's show on MMA Hour. I mentioned it on The Beat. And I was like, I think those guys like money as much as the next one. So if he signs with UFC, I can't say it's some huge shock. And I said it on this live chat too, but it's like, I don't know, man. That's hard to overlook. It's really, really, really hard to overlook. There's just something about that. It's not just a relic from the past. It's a reminder of, um, man, old grievances die hard. They die really, really, really hard. So that's my sense about the whole thing. But, like, if you thought as a fan you were used or as a media member you were used, maybe you were. But I got news for you. This ain't the last time. This will definitely happen again. All these guys who go to the media, the media is often a springboard to launch an idea about a fight someone's trying to secure or negotiations are trying to secure. Or, you know, look at look at Aljamain Sterling, right, going out and saying, oh, I'm thinking about retiring two days later or something, he has a fight, you know. And such to the point where he actually went back on his plea to never fight in Vegas again or his uh, semi-promise to never fight in Vegas again. But either way, he got a fight. Like, he has, he has some measure of financial security he can rely on with that. So, um you know, was that was that how he honestly felt? Probably. But was it also tactical? Sure. You know, he, he, he made a public stink about it, which means now that the problem he had is now a problem that fans would carry water for. It's a very, very, very common tactic. Uh, this one only has two recommendations, so I'm going to give it three. Now it turns green. Someone says, I am a big Gustafson fan, but I don't think he'll be able to stave off DC's pressure wrestling for 25 minutes. If Gustafson were to win, how would he do it? Yeah, this is the problem for me with Gustafson. It's not that he doesn't have a nice range of ability. I think his wrestling is going to be better than some folks. You know, uh, the problem with Anthony Johnson is that it's very hard to break through that first or second barrier, not like physical barrier, 
although to some extent, but more like the, you know, if you can get past his range, right, that's extremely difficult to do. Phil Davis couldn't do it. Okay, if you can get past that, that's one thing. And then if you can wrestle him against the fence and get him down, that's another. And then once he gets kind of on all fours or on his back, everything kind of deteriorates after that. So, so for me, for Anthony Johnson, it's like getting past those first couple of barriers is extremely difficult. But once you do it, the rest kind of takes care of itself. And so maybe someone like Phil Davis wasn't capable, but, but Daniel Cormier is. Um, for me and Gustafson, the way I look at it is, you know, you, you don't want to wrestle with him, right? Why would you ever want to do that? And I, I think he'll be better at scrambling if he gets taken down than some realize. You know, uh, Cormier is good on the ground, but he is much more of a guy who likes, like Habib Nurmagomedov. You know, yes, he can pass guard, but he doesn't have that real heavy top pressure. He lets guys get to turtle, and then he bangs on them from there. But that can be, you know, that can be exhausting for someone like Gustafson, who's going to be really looking to scramble. So for me, um, I'm not exactly sure how it's going to go, but I guess I'm just saying I have a hard time believing he's going to work behind that jab for 25 minutes. I think he's going to try and work behind the jab. But Cormier, man, Cormier is an expert at finding ways inside. He's good at putting pressure on you to get you back up with his footwork. He has good angling. and cuts the cage off. Um, he's good at parrying and firing his own shots and then digging an underhook. And really, he doesn't need to quickly find both underhooks. He just really needs one. Once he gets one underhook on you, you're in trouble, bro. You're in real trouble. If he can dig up, like Cain Velasquez, they get it from each other. If he can dig a left underhook on you and you're against the fence, oh, you are in a world of trouble now. That's kind of how it goes. So for me, it's like I, I, I don't know that I think that Gustafson's going to get blown out. And I don't rule out the possibility of Gustafson winning. But all things being equal, just looking at the most common scenarios, it seems to me eventually, one way or the other, Cormier is going to find a way inside, backing up Gustafson against the cage. Um, it may take a while, but he'll eventually do it. And then once he gets the underhook, he can bang on you from there. He can pick you up. He can drop you. Um, he just has a lot of different possibilities. For Gustafson, it's working behind the jab. It's keeping your back off the fence. It's just stick and move, stick and move. And that's a good game plan. I just don't know if that's enough of a game plan. And then you say, well, if it's not enough, what else can he add? Given his abilities, I'm not really sure, you know. Uh, with Burrell moving up to 145, how do you think he'll do there? Also, who do you give him first? I was thinking Swanson. Swanson might be a bit much. You know, former champion, yes, but he's had some bad beatings um, at the hands of Dillashaw, and he's had some tough outings in some other fights. I would like to see him fight someone at the very edge of the top ten. Um, I don't have the rankings in front of me. I don't know who who they keep up there these days. I'd never check the rankings anymore except for this, just for, like, references' sake. Um, they've got – yeah, even, like, number ten is Nick Lentz. That's a tough fight, man. That's a tough fight. Maybe I'd even go top 15. <clears throat> Maybe Kawajiri. Maybe Stevens. So I don't know. You know, like he had really good punching power at 135. I think he's going to lose some of that at 145. He'll get back some stamina, obviously. He'll probably get back some speed. So we'll see. We'll see. Um, I think he'll beat guys who have static abilities, guys like Clay Guida, who really only have like a first and second year, not that third, fourth, and fifth. Um but I wonder against like the Jeremy Stevens of the world who also has good takedown defense. I wonder how that power is going to match up that, that to me is going to be problematic. So we'll see how much his jujitsu comes to life at that weight class as well. But at 145, man, you get some big dudes 
155, they're just monsters from another planet, you know? All right. All right, UFC 192, good question here. What fights are you looking forward to the most this weekend? So you are not going to hear me say this very often. So everyone has been like, you know, me included, I'm guilty as charged, has been like really excited about UFC 149, and you should be. But the other day I was on, I was just looking up the, I was like, you know, I'm, I got to work this weekend. Let's, let's see who's on the thing. Let's see how I'm spending my Saturday night, right? Because I watch these fights alone. <laughs> um it used to be that I would invite people all the time to come watch, and then it was just like, I can't keep inviting people. You know, There's just no point. Um, all right, so look, here's what's crazy about the, what, I, what I was like looking through the, the fight card. UFC 192's fight card is excellent. Very good. Top to bottom. Three parts to it, pay-per-view, Fox Sports 1, and then Fight Pass. They all have redeeming features. So let's start from the bottom up. First of all, Adriano Martins taking on Islam Makachev. Okay, yes, please. Martins, very talented, maybe a guy who's underperformed a little bit against a Dagestani guy who you know has uh, some of the pedigree, has shown you flashes of brilliance. It's still developmental. It's a big, important fight for both guys on that one, more so for Martins, but definitely for Makachev too. Then you've got Trevino versus Northcutt. Trevino I don't think too much of, but Northcutt, everyone's got a ton of hype behind this kid. He's got a flashy style. Um, he's been promoted pretty heavily, so... That'll be interesting to see how he does. Uh, Chris Carriasso returns against Sergio Pettis. Well, you want to talk about the guys who have some work to do to, to – to, I mean, here is Sergio Pettis. He could be fighting in main events if a couple things had gone differently in his career. Now he's back on fight pass. He's got work to do. And Chris Carriasso, you know, okay, he can't, comes up short against the better guys, but Sergio Pettis has been a, a talented, if flawed, fighter. There's a lot to like there. Then you have Derek the Black Beast Lewis taking on Pesta. That's just fun for, uh, you know, uh, a Rock'em Sock'em uh, Robots kind of thing. Benavidez taking on Ali Bagautinov. I mean, a hugely important flyweight fight. Uh, let's see. Pulling this up. Uh, the return of Yair Rodriguez, and this time against Daniel Hooker. Uh, right? Rodriguez has been making leaps and bounds with his technical development. Maybe the most exciting prospect out of Mexico. Let's see what he's got. Uh, Alan Juban versus Albert Tumanov. That's going to be sensational. Tumanov, I think, very highly of. Juban, I've kind of slept on a little bit, but has you know put together some decent work in the octagon. Then, of course, who could forget Rose Namajunas taking on Angela Hill. Tough fight for Angela Hill, but um, if she can win that, she can do a lot. And, of course, everyone has a big soft spot for Rose Namajunas. Then you move to the main card. You've got Sean Jordan. Uh, he's returned to action against Ruslan Magomedov. Sean Jordan, I think, has looked better of late. It'll be interesting to see how he does. Jessica I taking on Juliana Pena. I mean, I'm not saying that the winner of that gets a title shot, but they're probably pretty close, especially if it's Pena. Then you got Ryan Bader on the re return of Rashad Evans, Johnny Hendricks, Tyron Woodley, and then the main event, Daniel Cormier, Alexander Gustafson. Every single fight has a redeeming feature to it. You guys have watched this chat. I'm like, I might be 200 episodes in at this point. You've never seen me this praiseworthy of a UFC card, at least not in a very long time. There's so much good about UFC 192 from top to bottom. This is what I want to see out of pay-per-view cards. I've been telling you guys, if they stack them, if they, do, if they cut the fat out a little bit, we're not asking a lot. We're just asking a little bit. I'll take a little bit of fat on some of the fight night cards if you're going to make an effort to make the pay-per-view card special. They have done exactly that. They got a little bit lucky with some of the injuries, not really blowing this card to pieces, and boom, here we are. Uh, what fight am I looking forward to most? I don't know. I'm kind of looking. I mean, the main event, I want to see who's going to face John Jones, but um, the entire card has something awesome about it. You could point to anything depending on what you want to look at.
UFC at Madison Square Garden. What are your thoughts on the UFC booking an event in New York for April 2016? How do you see the legal battle playing out? What do you think of the chances of it actually going ahead are? So let's see. It's going to be October soon. So October, November, December, January, February, March, April, about seven months away. That gives it time for the court case to to work its way through the system. Uh, hold on here just a second. All right. It, it gives it time to work its court case through the system to either get a yay or a nay. Assuming that um, things go in their favor and they're ready to move forward, they can get a third-party sanctioning. In this case, the WKA, I think uh, World Karate Association, World Kickboxing, one of the two. I think WKA, ISKA, I think has done glory shows. Maybe WKA as well. I can't remember. In, in either event. Um, but that'll, of course, be the same kind of regulation on top of what WKA requires that the UFC sort of meets as at the common standard when they do their international shows. So there's that as well. And of course, USADA will be involved no matter what. Um, so, so there's time to do it. And if it works out, there's time to promote. And if there's not, there's time to cancel it. So I think they've done that correctly. A couple things to note here. The UFC has intermittently year over year, I think dating back to 2012, maybe even 2011, but I knew about it in 2012 um, and certainly 13. I knew that they were booking individual dates there at MSG. Now, not... MSG was holding dates for them. So in the event that something would happen in the New York legislature or or with the court case, they could say, aha, we've got this date. We can flip it, turn it, and make it something special. And then, of course, there were a variety of factors that never let them do that. This is the first time that they've held a date and then made it public. I think that's a little bit interesting. And they've added a separate front on... Um, their, their push into New York. So they're trying to get the law changed in the legislature. They're suing because they're claiming it is an abridgment of free speech and that the ban on MMA is unconstitutional because of the written laws being vague, a vagueness claim. So there's three fronts there that they're fighting it on. The last one is the one that they're, they're using to push into MSG more, more readily. Um, I, think it's, I think it's bold. I think it's really bold. Uh, I don't know that how much you know MMA New York matters to you or anyone else. It's more a symbolic victory at this point than anything else. It'd be the first time in a, I don't know if ever, but maybe in a while that they've used third-party sanctioning instead of athletic commission because they had unsanctioned shows before, but I'm not sure they ever used third-party before commissions or in conjunction with commissions. Even though maybe I guess you could say Indian casinos count. Whatever the case. Um, yeah, it's bold, man. It's really bold. It will, if it works, it will garner them goodwill. It will obviously now create a pathway to have future shows. Some people have said, well, it'll backfire and the state will find some way to take it away. I actually think it'll do just the opposite. Let's say it all works, that uh, the, the ban is ruled unconstitutional, that they go into MSG in April. Let's say they have John Jones on the card against Cormier or something. And Barbus is here. And let's say, um, you know, maybe Chris Weidman's on the card or, or whatever. You can just imagine like a, like a banger of a card, okay? And they really, I mean, they're going to they're gonna blow it out. They're not just going to say, well, this is another big pay-per-view. They're going to go into New York. They're going to have a huge fight week. 
They're going to have as many events around the city as possible. They're going to they're going to beg, plead, encourage, and do everything possible for people to show up and spend money on restaurants and spend money on hotels and and meet and greets with fighters and everything else. They might even do an expo, man, because what they want to be able to show is that when we came to New York, we blew the doors off of this place. How much money did we bring to the city? How much money did we bring to Madison Square Garden? Um, you know, how much money did we bring to the union workers who who work uh, concession sales or janitorial services at this facility. We brought a lot. You know, we gave them a lot of extra manpower hours. We did a lot of stuff in the city. And I think the commission is going to want to say eventually we want to get um, a piece of that because they don't get a piece of it, right? If they go to my home city, Washington, D.C., they get a chunk of that. They get a chunk, I think, of the pay-per-view money. They get a chunk of any kind of broadcast they send out. They get a piece of that. They might even get a piece of concession sales or at least not that, then ticket sales. They, they get a pound of flesh at every commission across the country. They get a pound of flesh from them. In this particular case, they would, they would not be getting anything because they don't regulate it. They're, they can't touch it. So they're going to probably want to say, geez, look at what they did, man. This is crazy. And I, I bet what they're going to do is if it's successful, and I'm sure it'll be hugely successful, they're going to go right back to back. They're going to go to Rochester. They're going to go to Buffalo. They're going to go to whatever. Um, and they're going to say, look at look at what we're doing. And what I think it's going to wind up having is having the commission itself lobby on behalf of their UFC saying, we need to be in charge of this, and, and we're passing up money that could greatly benefit us to do our jobs better. So I think in the end, it'll actually be very convincing. But what I would expect is if they go to New York, not just a big card. Yes, a big card. A big local effort. They're going to want to make sure as many people come and spend as many dollars as possible. Closed circuit television parties, the works, right? They're going to do everything they can to make that a huge money-making event at every point of sale for a UFC event. All right, Sage Northcutt and the scouting success of a reality show. What do you make of the young talent Sage Northcutt being discovered on Dana White's new reality show, Looking for a Fight. Well, he wasn't discovered there. That was just done for entertainment purposes, which is fine because it's a hot prospect they're putting more attention on, but he was discovered there not at all. Um, Sage already seemed to be getting the potential star treatment by the UFC, and my guess is a couple of decent wins. We'll see a Paige Van Zandt-type Reebok sponsorship deal for the young fighter. That sounds about right to me. He has the look and the pedigree with an interesting backstory as well. So then, how important is a victory at 192? Not hugely consequential, but certainly a step in the right direction. Not only for Sage himself, but for other fighters scouted this way by the UFC. I don't think that that would be a referendum on the UFC. I think the, the product being entertaining, the product being able to garner eyeballs, and then if a few of the guys convert, great. I mean, remember the tap-out show, right? Remember the tap-out show that was on uh, Versus back in the day? And the guys would drive around in the van and they would discover guys. Lots of good guys came off of that. I mean, if you find a hot prospect early, you know, a lot of them convert in MMA. John Dodson was on that show. I want to say Donald Cerrone was on that show, but I could be wrong about that. Um, but, you know, there were guys like Matt Majors who was on the show and he wound up being homeless and um, he's trying to get his life back on track. And I hope he does. But I just sort of, you know, he didn't really work out as a as a top prospect. Um, but a lot of guys did. So Sage might, you know, super athletic, super young. But he wasn't discovered on the show. He was already discovered, and the show was used as a vehicle to promote him. That's what that was. Uh, let's see. What are the pros and cons of this reality show scouting process? It's not a scouting process. 
the scouting process is done ahead of time, and then the, it's television. I mean, I know it's on Fight Pass, but it's television. I've been, in, I've done a little bit enough of television to know it's not real, which is fine. It doesn't have to be real, but it's not real. So they found them ahead of time. They like what they saw, and they decide to use this as a promotional vehicle where everyone's like, "Oh my God, I'm discovering this guy for the first time." You're not, and that's okay that you're not, but you're not. Um, Pros and cons, I don't know. If you guys like it, they'll probably keep going. If they, if they, if you are not watching it, they won't. Other than that, uh, maybe it's a good departure for the Ultimate Fighter, which is to me, you know, the signal to noise ratio is kind of terrible, right? Where you have, you know, if I said name five cast members from season seventeen of the Ultimate Fighter, you might be able to do it. How quickly could you do it? But if I said name ten top ranked guys who came off of the Ultimate Fighter, that might be a little more doable. So I think this thing about, you know, cutting out some of the fat, again, cutting out some of the fat and sort of getting to what you know to be, no one's ever surefire, but, you know, it's a little bit more of a surefire guarantee when you go out there. And, of course, there'll always be guys who get overlooked. Look, the NFL draft process is a joke. How many guys don't go in, like, you know, what, where, you know Brady was not a first-round draft pick. It wasn't a second- or third-round draft pick, you know. Uh, a lot of guys go very, very late. Some guys go not at all, and they wind up being huge stars in the NFL. So, um but for me, whether it's inexact or not, they'll never be exact. It's just maybe focus on the things that you think have a little bit more of a chance of succeeding. And if guys come up through the ranks without that, that's cool too, man. It makes it for a- another great story, you know. Give me one second. All right. But, you know, if they do a bunch of this and this guy just gets blown out, you know, uh, that'll suck. Uh, a good comment from MJC flipped the script. You all know him from fight metric. He says, uh, I enjoyed it. I didn't expect to like it, but I did. And whether or not the discovery of Northcutt was coincidental, wink, wink or not, I didn't really mind. I liked the format of integrating the small regional shows with the UFC scene and showing the audience that these fighters come from small places. Plus it gives you a little more incentive to watch the random debut fighter on the undercard. Matt Sarah was pretty entertaining, too. It's a refreshing change from tough. Uh, someone says, I didn't see this as a reality show. Well, then you didn't see it correctly, because that's what it is. All right, let's see here. Don Jones. All right, let's get to this, shall we? Let's have some more of this gasoline. You guys been following that Volkswagen scandal? They apparently had installed software in, their, in many of their vehicles starting from 2007, 2010 uh, to trick tests, emissions tests. Uh, the software would allow the vehicles to pass even though they'd be spitting out far more harmful chemicals um, than the test would show. The software was essentially cheating the system. And uh, it's a big problem here in the States. They're being sued. And it's a big problem, in, especially in Europe. Um, it's even being linked to deaths from pollution. Imagine that stuff, the extra stuff that w- that is banned by the EPA, being bottled and then put into a liquid. That's, that's how this tastes. All right. John Jones, what are your thoughts on the outcome of the Jones hearing? How long do you predict it will be? before we see him back in the octagon? Boy, is that a good question. Um, I don't know. 
I really, really don't know. I think it'll be sooner rather than later. I think if they can get their way, they'll probably try and hold him for that April show at MSG, uh, right? Because that's seven months from now. That'll be almost a year he was out, roughly, you know? Absence makes the heart grow fonder slash forgiving. So there's a bit of that going on. Um, if the MSG thing doesn't work out, they still might try to hold him for an April time frame anyway, just so he can have his calendar about when he's preparing to fight and, and everything else. Um, what do I think about the outcome of the hearing? I think it is the most important moment in this guy's career right now, right now. You guys know I'm a legendary defender of him to some extent up until his last incident where he hit a pregnant woman and then ran from the scene of the crime, which he essentially admits to, right? These are terrible things. Um, so... So I wrote a column about it, or not really a column. I just sort of wrote some analysis of it. Um, it's up on the site today. I guess I have, I'm of two minds of the, of the situation. On the one hand, um, I'm glad he's avoiding jail time, right? And I'm of two minds of it, so let me get this out. I'm glad he's avoiding jail time because if it's not necessary, the incarceration would just be uh, horrible for his personal life. Uh, he's a father, you know, he has kids. It would be terrible for his career. And if he can prove that he can get on the straight and narrow, living a life, at least for the next 18 months of sobriety, um, you know, living a life dedicated to training, living a life giving back to community, about helping with youth development and at-risk or other troubled youth, right? If he can do all these things he's been mandated to do, um, and this is the moment from which he can really say, okay, I get it. I, I have to make changes in my life. Um I don't want to be a what could have been in terms of the upper bound of his potential, or I don't want to lose any more than I already have, you know, two apparel sponsorships. Right. And who knows, God knows what else has fallen by the wayside. Um, this is the moment. This is the moment in 18 months. I feel like we will know, or it won't be the moment, right? It'll be the moment he says, you know what? I, I couldn't, I couldn't for one reason or another, I couldn't meet, the demands of this probation. But more than that, like, how would he break it? Would he break it because of the sobriety restrictions? Would he break it because he just doesn't do enough of the, you know, he only does 40 as opposed to the 72, um, you know, mandated uh, appearances for, you know, counseling and mentoring at-risk youth? I, I don't know. But to me, the, the, the claim would be if he didn't do the thing he was supposed to do, to avoid jail time and having to have this felony on his record. To me, it would just be that he basically can't manage his personal life effectively anyway. Right? He's not so reckless that he is, you know, some, you know, aggrieved menace to society at all times, maybe. But if you can't meet these very simple demands, do these things in terms of, uh, you know, public works, stay sober and stay out of trouble generally. This seems to me a very easy thing to do, provided that you have the mechanisms and support structure in place. And from a monetary standpoint, he can surround himself with that. But internally, does he want to comply? Comply generally. Does he want to comply? Does he say internally, I have to comply? Because it feels like he's never made that choice. Feels like he's complied when he's had to. Feels like he's complied sometimes 
But, you know, when you hear these stories about some of his personal behavior and his personal life, which is none of our business, but, you know, you question about how much is it pushing him in the right direction in terms of his potential. And, you know, and then you hear stories about he's barely training for fights and still blowing these guys out, but, you know, just not being what he could be. You get a sense of this guy is only complying enough to make it to the next stage. And that eventually runs out. You just begin to get less and less comfortable with even that small measure of compliance. This, to me, is a question of can John Jones comply? Can he do what he is told? I don't know. I don't know. I certainly hope so. For your benefit, for his benefit most of all, for the benefit of the sport, for the benefit of his legacy, for the benefit of his family, for the benefit of his own personal health, I hope. I truly, truly hope. But when you finally say, I am secondary to these larger compliances that I have to make, then you can proceed in a healthy direction. And then you can begin to regain a measure of control over your life. But right now, he has to cede control. Um, And it turns out that when he's in the driver's seat up until this point, both literally and figuratively, um, he doesn't make a lot of the best decisions. And so they have removed some of that ability, which I think is a good thing. I just, I don't know if it's going to work. And that's, that leads me to my second point. It was like, you know, I'm, I'm not saying I wanted jail time for him. And jail time is still hanging over his head, you know. It's not like the threat has completely gone away. But look, in the end, someone is only going to do something if they want to do it. You can put someone who is obese with all the good food and you want in a refrigerator trapped in a house, a house with the best state-of-the-art equipment. If they don't want to lose weight, they won't. Um, and I went to boot camp, right? And some people, you know, they would just constantly, this is Marine Corps boot camp, you know, almost 20 years ago. And, you know, if they want to do harmful things to you, they can, but you just find people who just didn't want to comply. You know, the system there only works if you give in to what the drill instructors tell you. If you give in to their role, if you give in to their power. And even when their power was capricious and unfair and cruel, that was how the system worked, right? You have you you have to want that. And so I do think that external incentives can, you know, help the decision-making process, right? The threat of jail time versus no threat of jail time is going to get a certain change in outcomes from a certain change in behavior. So I acknowledge that there's that. So the other part of me was like, you know, maybe there should have been a little bit of jail time. I don't know. I, I, I guess what I'm wondering is, did, again, if he doesn't want it, it's not going to make a difference. But I also kind of wonder is, did they make the cost-benefit analysis clear enough to him? You know, did they really lean on him enough? Everyone will tap eventually, right? Or most people will anyway. Did they, did they really crank it enough to make him want to say uncle? I don't know. We're going to find out. All right. McGregor wants Frankie. Okay. Dana White stated that Conor McGregor wants Edgar next. Obviously, it's a matter of both winning their next title fights. Excuse me, their next fights. But am I the only one who thinks Edgar is a nightmare matchup for Conor? I think we've talked about this before on the show. I don't know how I call him a nightmare matchup, but I would say Edgar, of all the guys Edgar matches up against at featherweight, Edgar's probably the least advantageous matchup, which isn't to say he wouldn't win. For all the McGregor supporters out there, it just means that that would probably be his toughest fight one way or the other. 
Uh, let's see. Pena possibilities. Because of Pena being injured and inactive for a considerable time, the early excitement about her potential has faded somewhat. That's true. Yet Juliana returned to destroy Milana Dudieva in April and got her career back on good footing. Against the very tough Jessica I, UFC 192 this weekend, the talented tough winner has a real chance to shine. Just how important is a good victory to her at this juncture in her career? I would say, I would say this is a big one, man. This is a really big one. I mean, they're all big, of course, but they were all fighters like they're all big. Well, that's what they have to say. We don't have to say that one. But this one, this one's big, man. There's a few fights in your life where you gotta turn a corner. And not to say that she hasn't proven everything that we have asked her to do or nothing like that, but I as a different level opponent with a much better skill set. Uh, I would say decent takedown defense. She can bang on the feet against someone like Pena, who is, you know, I mentioned before, I think in the last week's chat, you get those Paige Van Zant Rousey type, um, I got a hair in my nose, those Paige Van Zant Rousey type pressure styles in the women's game. And they have, they're very effective. She's got that too, but of course they all have back, you know, um, they all have challenges as well. I mean, they take a couple of shots when they're not supposed to. Now, Juliana is a little bit different in that she she readily goes, so I'd say from Paige Van Zandt, she readily goes to the ground and looks to advance to mount. She's, you know, I've said this before too. I think mount is a bit of a lost art, and she has an excellent mount. Excellent mount. Um, so for me, if you can go and boss around someone like Jessica I, something that Misha Tate, you know, Misha Tate as the fight went on, got better and better, obviously, uh, and had great moments, even early on, I should say a little bit. Damn it, this hair in my nose. Um, but if you can go around and, and, you know, make Misha Tate's performance look pedestrian, man, you can say a lot about where you're supposed to be and how the time off meant nothing and, um, who you really are. And really, honestly, I think if Pena wins, she's a, if not after this fight, maybe one, two more at the most, she's gotta be on a collision course for Ronda Rousey, man. Gotta be, you know, the storyline is there. If she can beat I, then the, um, the talent is there. Maybe they end up matching her with. Misha Tate, I mean, I doubt that because of the contendership situation, but you just, you know what I'm saying? Like, she just really vaults herself into a new space that she's not really currently in. Maybe deserves to be, but is not. Uh, by contrast, just guy can be Juliana Pena. She gets a lot of, I think, you know, she won't get as, Pena has more to gain here, but certainly uh, has a lot to gain. She, she just couldn't perform against Misha Tate, and this is a chance to go out and say, look at this rising contender that everyone was kind of wanting to surf on the popularity she couldn't get past me. I am part of that upper end of the division now and for a while longer. So a lot to be had by both. But for me, Juliana has so much to gain by a win here, especially a dominant one, one where she does, you know, what she does best. Or, you know, like a Fedor versus Fujita type performance where you you get into early trouble and you fight back and you look like an amazing beast, like what champions do, right? Um, that would be good for her too. You know, a pedestrian fight or or a fight that's sort of lackluster or doesn't have a lot of highs or lows, maybe not so much, but you know, one where she can either show a lot of grit and determination and then excellent finishing skills or one where she just bulldozes, I think would be tremendous for her. Tremendous for her. Right, let's see here. Oh, whoo. Evans versus Bader. Well, that one's making me sweat, man. <laughs> that one is making me sweat. All right. Evans versus Bader. How do you see the Evans versus Bader fight going? How big a factor do you think Rashad's long layoff will be in this fight? I'm a little bit worried about it. 
I'm a little bit worried about it. If it was an Evans from his peak, you know, the best Rashad Evans versus what I would say is we're getting pretty much the best Bader ever. Uh, I would pick Evans. I like Evans' chances there. But with a two-year layoff coming back from injury, man, I really don't know. This is a very, very, very tough fight for him. And there's a part of me, I don't think that's, I don't, I don't think this is real. I'm not suggesting this is actually happening, but there's like this weird feeling I get where, you know, UFC matchmakers might even want to face him against Bader because they know he, it won't go well for him and it'll help facilitate him moving on with his career to the next step, you know, moving on to Fox full time and, and doing that kind of thing. Again, I don't think that's real, but I, I almost sort of feel that way about it just because of how, yeah, two-year layoff is forever. It's forever. And coming back from these devastating injuries at his age, I, I don't know what we're going to get. Y'all saw how Dotson looked against Zach Mikowski. Terrible. And I know that, you know, look, I know that Dominic Cruz came back against Mizugaki and was, like, amazing. And like not only had he not missed a step, but maybe it had gotten even better. That is the exception, not the norm. Most guys have trouble. And Dominic Cruz is still relatively youthful. Uh, Evans is just older. So I don't know, man. I don't know. It's a tough one. If someone's picking Bader in that fight, I don't even blame him. In fact, I might just because he's more of a sure thing at this point. You know, Evans at his peak was quicker, obviously had better footwork, tremendous takedown defense, uh, better striking, but against Bader, who's been consistent, if nothing else, against a absent Evans, I mean, we're all just guessing at that point. We're just guessing. All right, this is a good question because it comes up a fair bit, and I'm happy to get to it because it's important. So the question is, journalists disrespecting fighters. So here it goes. Quite often, MMA journalists will speak in quite condescending terms about fighter skills and relevance in the UFC. Many MMA fighters will f- uh, follow MMA media quite closely and are often quite offended and insulted by the way MMA journalists talk to them. Okay, I'll just leave that as is. Do you spend much energy trying to keep track of what you've said about various fighters, given that you may find yourself in a situation where you have to interview someone who you recently made disparaging remarks about? Or do you not worry about this at all and just expect them to be professional and forget such things when you're doing an interview with them? So there's a lot of moving parts to this. Let me say a couple things. Number one, you say quite often MMA journalists will speak in quite condescending terms about fighter skills and relevance in the UFC. Um, there might be some instances of that. I don't say that this doesn't exist. Well, what I would say is what a lot of people have classified as mean or condescending is an absolutely no way, shape, or form mean or condescending. What is often you see are people who are fans of someone taking issue with a sober assessment. They don't view it as sober. They view it as cruel. They view it as unnecessarily mean, but it's not mean. No one is insulting them personally. No one is making any claims about who, about their character, not often anyway. Um, what you're often finding is someone is saying, look, this guy doesn't belong in the UFC. This is a terrible decision he made here. This guy has no guard or whatever the case may be. These are not insults. These are assessments. And whether or not the, the assessments are correct, we can debate that at a different time, but they're not unprofessional in and of themselves. So first of all, I would say that the vast, and this doesn't even refer just to me. I see everyone Everyone in MMA media has to deal with this at some point. The overwhelming amount of pushback on MMA media critiques about fighters is bull ass. Total bull ass. It's just fans not hearing someone treat their idol like a fan. Or a fighter 
who has, you know, listen, I understand where fighters come from. They live and die in their own head. Um, they're sensitive, man. They're on edge and they're hungry and they're, and they're all, sometimes they're broke and they don't want to deal with someone out there maybe saying things that is true about their ability or not true about their ability or whatever. They just don't want to hear it. I understand them being angry. I don't ask them to act rationally, although it would be nice, especially as they get older, it'd be nice. Um, but, you know, on fan, on Twitter, if you say something about a, fan, a fighter and they're a, someone's a fan of them, they're going to be like, why are you a hater, bro? Well, I'm not actually a hater, and neither is this journalist or that journalist or that journalist. We're just trying to do our jobs properly, and that doesn't always mean saying complimentary things about your ability. In fact, oftentimes it, it requires us to do the opposite. Okay, so, there, so there's that, number one. Right. Uh, okay. Then you say many MMA fighters follow MMA media quite closely and are often quite offended and insulted by the way MMA journalists talk about them. That is true, although for different reasons than I think you and I think. But then you ask, do you spend much energy trying to keep track of what you said about various fighters, given that you may find yourself in a situation where you have to interview someone you recently made disparaging remarks about? No, not really. Um, certainly, I've looked on the past and some things I've said about different fighters at times because there's been some that I liked and some I absolutely hated. There's still some that I absolutely hate. I think they're terrible people. And um, some are gone from the sport, and I couldn't be happier about it. I have no problem saying that. I'm not going to get into a debate about who because it's not really relevant. I'm not interested in having some public squabble. But, yeah, I think some of these guys are pricks, straight up. Not, they can't all be heroes, right? In any population, in any kind of group, some are going to be great and some are going to be awful. A lot are just going to be in the middle. And that's basically how fighters work, too. Some of your favorite guys out there are great. and Some of your favorite guys out there and ladies, whoever, are terrible. They're just terrible people. So just keep that in mind. And it's a true with journalists too. Some journalists are going to be great people and some are going to be terrible scumbags. It's the same in any population, right? Okay. So if we can agree to that much, but generally speaking, I'm at a point now where I just don't care. I'm going to do my job the best I can. I'm going to be as fair as I can. I'm going to do, I'm going to work really diligently to just try to stay informed about who they are, about the techniques involved, about my assessments I'm just going to try. I'm going to try. And if people don't like it, what can I really do? What can I really do? I've got a huge body of work at this point from however many years in the sport. Some of it's great. Some of it's terrible. A lot of it's right in the middle, like anything else. Um, but I can't go around worrying about people policing what I have to say. You just can't. It's a terrible way to go through life. Jeez, I don't want to offend someone. Okay, I, there's definitely a case to be made about trying to be a kind person, an understanding person. But that runs, that, that stops right at when you're losing your professionalism. Because unprofessional doesn't just mean I'm going so far that I'm being mean. It can work the other way, too. And actually, I'd say this is a bigger problem than MMA. You know, you get these lesser guys on these smaller websites, and they might say cruel and un, you know, uneven things. But at the upper end of the websites, what I think you're often seeing is guys who are a little bit more accommodating. Maybe less so than they used to be. I think MMA media has gotten a lot better. But there was a time when the problem was everyone was too friendly. Um, and that's not the case now necessarily, I guess, but, but professionalism works both ways. It means not being cruel and it means not being too buddy, buddy. It means actually sort of trying to stay relatively in the middle, easier said than done. Oftentimes it doesn't happen, including myself. I'm sure I've made plenty of mistakes in that regard, but just trying to understand the situation here. So the problem for me, well, not for me anymore, I'm just going to do what I do. I'm going to try and be as fair as possible and as factual as possible and as informed as possible. And if I'm wrong, I hope someone corrects me. 
And if I'm mean, I hope someone says something. But generally speaking, I don't, I cannot live my life worrying about the minute dissection of things from people who have a vested interest in someone else, either financially or emotionally, because they're not, their feedback is irrelevant to me. I, I can't live that way. I cannot do my job that way. And you don't want me to do my job that way, frankly. You want people that are going to get up here and at least be relatively honest with you. You don't want people who are going to get up here and say, this guy sucks. Or when a guy sucks, this guy's amazing. You don't want that. You don't want that. You want something in the middle. And as long as people are trying to give you that, they're never going to be mistake free, but that's, that's it. But the vast majority, and I've seen it over and over and over and over and over again, the vast majority of what people call unfair criticism from the MMA media is 100% completely, totally above board justified. Fact now, fact later, fact forever. All right. Um, RDA and Conor McGregor. Drama. Rafael Dos Anjos has confidently stated he would smash Conor McGregor at 155. If they were to fight today, where do you see the main battlegrounds being in the contest? I see it, Conor on his back getting crushed. I think Dos Anjos is a terrible matchup for him. Uh, in which areas do you think each fighter has a technical preeminence? Probably McGregor at distance. Uh, but even then, I wonder a little bit about how he would take some... I mean, I think... One thing that people sleep on about Dos Anjos is, you know, Conor McGregor is a little bit more of a fluid, dy dynamic striker at distance. Um, and so I'd probably give him that. But I'll, I don't think he'd be badly outmatched. I think he's, I think this is one thing people sleep on about Dos Anjos. Dude, he, he, he packs a hammer. He has hard leg kicks. He has a hard punch. And he's quick. And he's quick to the draw. He is a nightmare matchup for Conor McGregor. That is a terrible, terrible fight for him. Plus, he would get in on and wrestle him to the ground, pass his guard. It would just be, it would be, it would be a horrendous beatdown for him. I don't like McGregor, but at 155, and there are guys, he, good guys. I think McGregor could beat at 155. <laughs> Dos Anjos ain't one of them. All right. Overlooked high-level fight for this weekend, Hendricks versus Woodley. Is it just me, or is no one talking about this stupendous matchup? I mean, I wouldn't say no one's talking about it, but um, it's not like the talk of the town. Two explosive NCAA Division I All-Americans, Hendricks a two-time champ, with monstrous power fighting for the next welterweight title shot. Woodley may be one of my top five favorite fighters, but goddamn on paper, this fight is going to be awe-inspiring to watch for me. Also, both are very underrated technicians. The way Woodley lures you into his game plan, into his power shots, and or power doubles is superlative. While Hendricks mixes up his striking and wrestling so fluidly, it's like Jesus, man. Also, no one notices this, but his boxing is very, very underrated. His combos are nasty. I effing love this fight. You like it a little bit more than I do. And also, no one is confused that Johnny Hendricks can box. Like, everyone kind of knows that. The question is, um, how good is it? It's okay. It's not amazing. It's okay. It's good. You know, for me, I'm a little bit worried about this one because um, 
Woodley, I think, is going to be tentative and careful. Um, it's, oh, by the way, in the last question about RDA versus McGregor, someone writes, I think many Connor fans hated Luke's answer, LOL. Don't care. Can't go around worrying about what fans of one guy thinks. If they say things I like, that's cool. If they say things I don't like, that's equally cool too. Can't worry about it. All right. But as for Woodley and Hendricks, uh, I'm a little bit worried about this one because I think the, the fight is important and it needs to happen and has um, a lot to like about it. Here's one way it could go badly. Not badly exactly, but not awesomely. Woodley might be tentative, will back up and look to counter the wrestling of Hendricks as Hendricks plows forward. Hendricks will throw a little bit. Woodley will exchange, but he'll ultimately have his back against the fence or close to it. And the fight will be a bit stalemated there. Or Hendricks might get a couple takedowns and Woodley might pop up. But it just might happen in close quarters where there's not a lot landing and striking. There's a lot of battles for positional control. And there's not a lot of highs and lows in the fight. I'm a little bit worried it's going to go that way. I have a hard time seeing how Woodley's going to make Hendricks back up. That's just not what he does. Hendricks likes to move forward. Woodley likes to move back. That seems like a natural pairing. The wrestling might cancel each other out for the most part, or maybe just enough to give one guy an advantage. And certainly we both know they can pack a bomb, but I just don't know if either guy is going to fight in such a way to put themselves in that kind of position. If you know you're fighting a guy who can bomb on you, um, you're, you might take a few extra precautions. And certainly they know that if they don't, they're in trouble. And I don't think that's the case. So I think this one might be a little bit, could be wrong. Could be totally wrong. Maybe they go out there and just slug it out in the center of the cage, Macadesi Cerrone style. But this one might be a little bit more careful. And it might be some good wrestling involved. So in that sense, you know, I, I shouldn't be too disparaging of it. And I'm not, I'm not, I don't think it'll be a bad fight. Let me just be clear about that. I think it'll be a good fight. But I don't think it's going to be some crazy bang fest. Just, just because... Just because guys can do it doesn't mean they like to or that they will. All right, let's see here. Ooh. Wow. Uh, okay. Welcome to the Ryan Hall era. Do you think Ryan Hall will have a big impact on grappling and MMA, such as the use of footlocks, 50-50 guard, or other relatively rare submissions, positions of styles of grappling? Um, I don't know. I don't know because I like Ryan a lot. I've known him for a very long time. He's been a guest at my home. Uh, met him years ago when he was a blue belt, I think. Very, very, I mean, I think he got purple like a month after that. But anyway, I've known him for a while. But um, I don't know. He's using it so far on people of the level of the ultimate fighter there's several more levels up. And so to, to me, what I want to see are, you know, guys who are, um, guys who have better wrestling, guys who have their own better jujitsu, guys who have good sub defense and great striking, you know? So I think Ryan, and I think Ryan would be the first to tell you, he's still in the, the developmental process himself. The thing about him and everyone talking about him on these like foot locks and leg locks and stuff, like this is, 2% of Ryan's game. That's what's kind of funny to me about all of this, you know? Like, if you ask me to describe Ryan as a grappler, um, knowing the totality of his game, I would say footlocks is like 10%. Truly 10%. 
I actually view him much more, at least for MMA context, I view him much more as a Demi and Maya type. Or even a Jacare type. Not, not, I think Jacare is a better athlete, of course. But I mean the style of jiu-jitsu. Take down to pass to mount. Take down to pass to back take. Right? That's kind of who he is. Now, he's able to get around these Ultimate Fighter guys with his leg locks because he's so damn good. Um, and he has such an advantage there. But part of me feels like he's doing this because he knows he can beat him with it. And it keeps the rest of his game hidden. Like I can beat these guys. I like. I think he likes to use those tools in competition because everyone is so bad at foot locks and everyone is so bad at leg locks and everyone is so bad at leg entanglements generally. But I'm telling you guys, this is not the guy who he is. He is. He is. He has a ton, a ton of ability in other areas. His back control is nuts. Right. His guard passing is nuts. His top pressure for being a little guy is ridiculo. It's it's nuts. It's nuts, man. It's nuts. So, um, you know, I don't know how he's going to progress. I don't know what choices he's going to make about what he wants to use in the octagon and what he doesn't want to use. I'm just telling you, like, if you view him as a footlock guy, obviously he is so talented as that you can do that but if you looked at like someone like Marcin Held, you know, Marcin Held could do other things too. He can Toriando pass to neon belly to whatever. He can do all that stuff too. I'm telling you, he doesn't have all the other stuff that Ryan does. He does not. Does not. Um, and so for me, that's kind of where it's like, it's kind of weird to see him now that he's sort of like publicly making himself known in an MMA context. Everyone's like, oh, footlock guy, 50-50 guy. Yes, absolutely. No doubt about it. As a competitor, this is what he kind of made his name off of. I just, just, just you wait, just you wait. When Paul Harris gets his leg lock shut down, he shuts down. It's like the Anthony Johnson in that regard. You shut down Ryan's leg locks, he'll just take your back. He'll just his arm drags are nuts. He has amazing arm drags, amazing arm drags to the back. So shut down his leg locks. Okay, he'll just climb your back. Shut down his legs lock. Okay, he'll just get on top and pass your guard. Like it's a it, this idea about pigeonholing him is a very very foolish idea. Okay, what are your thoughts on Josh Simmons? Simmons, I can never pronounce his name properly. Simmons' recent interview, Salmons, whatever, recent interview with Jeff Nowitzki. Do you think having the UFC stand firmly behind Nick Diaz on the issue would help his chances in an appeals process? After reading the interview. I couldn't help but feel more disappointed in the UFC for not releasing a statement after the Diaz hearing showed similar support. Okay, a lot of moving parts to that one, too. Here's what I think. Number one, first of all, Josh Saman, 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 whatever he pronounced his name, is, is, is such a beast. Hey, buddy. Come here. Are you yelling? Come here, come here, come here, come here. All right. His heart is beating a 1,000 miles a minute. Hollow Madrid, right, buddy? Uh, okay. Here, go. Um, okay, first of all, Saman is a beast. Such a talented guy. First of all, looks like he's carved out of stone. Tremendous fighter. Uh, smart guy, obviously. Great rider. And just has natural skills for this space. I don't know what he wants to do after fighting. I wouldn't recommend MMA media because I don't know how much money is there for most people. But if he wants it, he's got all, he's got everything you could ask. right? So there's that. Number one. Number two. 
Um, there was lots of nuggets in that interview. If you haven't read it yet, you need to. Not least of which is he gets the UFC to comment on, at least Nowitzki vis-a-vis the UFC, to comment on Josh Gross's report in Deadspin about the Vitor Belfort UFC 152 uh, testosterone test. Now, Nowitzki doesn't say much. In fact, he somewhat dismisses it and says, you know, it's kind of a different era. We've moved on. But he's the first person to get any kind of comment from them. So that should be noted. Um, and also Nowitzki says, don't trust the media. Well, if you don't want us to be trusted, say something, right? Tell us why we're wrong. Right, okay. So you don't get, you don't get to make those claims without making counterfactual claims. Like when USADA said the Thomas Hauser story, Despination was wrong. They put out like a 40 point document clarifying what they thought were factual errors. You don't get to just say, Hey, there's factual errors without actually pointing out what the factual errors are. So there's that, but whatever. Neither here nor there. As for Nick Diaz, a couple things have happened. People say, well, the UFC hasn't been very supportive of Nick. And maybe in a public way that they haven't. And maybe you don't like that. And I wouldn't argue too much with you about that. However, what Nowitzki says in this interview is, number one, he comes out and basically says, scientifically, from a medical standpoint, what the commission alleged has no basis. No basis. Scientifically or medically, Zero basis. Number one, that's a problem, he notes. Number two is a problem, he notes. They focused in on Quest Labs, which is not a horrible laboratory, except that procedurally they put his name on there, which is a total no-no. The test does not uh, you know, align with the results from the more accurate testing done by the WADA lab. So there's a procedural problem in addition to there being a scientific problem. That's another fact. Okay, so we have two problems now. And then three, he notes that the protocols aren't even filed, followed on their own book. And that three-year ban, by the way, hasn't gone into effect yet. So in every dimension of what happened to Nick Diaz, you have a UFC representative, very kindly, very matter-of-factly, but in a non-aggressive way, I'll, I, I, that, that should be noted, saying that there's a commission error here. This, to me, is unheard of. You might have seen videos of Dana White freaking out about Steve Mazzagatti or something like that. But this is the first time you've ever had a UFC rep go piece by piece on the case and say, it doesn't matter if it's scientifically. It doesn't matter if it's procedurally. It doesn't matter if the issue is what punishment to follow based on historical precedent. In every particular dimension of this case, Nick Diaz has suffered an injustice. And he doesn't say those words exactly, but that's what's happened here. Piece by piece by piece. Okay, that is a big victory for Nick Diaz. And that is frankly, a, a to me, a strong degree of public support. More than that, more than that, he says that he has been working with the commission since that moment to try and educate them on some of what this evidence actually means. I will say the following. For the first time in a long time, I have a strong degree of confidence that when this case goes before a judge, the judge will rule in Nick Diaz's favor. At a minimum, he will rule that he should be retried. And if he is retried, and this commission is actually listening to Nowitzki and the UFC try to give some input, trying to help guide them in a direction towards science, towards following procedure, towards acknowledging precedent, he will get off scot-free. I'm not saying that's going to happen. I'm just saying for the first time maybe ever in this whole process, I have felt good about it. So maybe they didn't put out a statement and take Nick's back right away, but this has worked as a kind of de facto statement. UFC worked with one of their own fighters in-house who serves a dual role as fighter slash journalist. They talked to him. They gave him a lot of interesting information, 
and they have articulated ways in which they have stated public support uh, or and, and private support for Nick Diaz in every single scenario. And more than that, Nick Diaz tweeted yesterday, the UFC put me in touch with their lawyers, Ed Campbell and Williams, and they also will be helping me with the NSAC. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what they're supposed to be doing. And if you have any issues about what they're not providing them, I don't know what it could be. They didn't come out and issued a giant FU to the NSAC, but they were never going to do that. What they were going to do is say, okay, this is ridiculous. Not just because it's five years. It should be zero years. Zero years. That's how many. How many years should it be, Luke? Zero. Zero years is how much it should be. You slap him on the wrist. You fine him for not filling out his medical questionnaire correctly. And then we go on with our lives. And Nick Diaz gets back in the octagon and makes bank. Because that's what's supposed to happen. That's what's supposed to happen procedurally from precedent and scientifically. Fact. That's what's supposed to happen. Anyone arguing, well, you know, he didn't obey the rules. Huh. Because I have a UFC rep saying not only did he obey the rules, it was the commission that didn't obey the rules. They used, they ignored scientific findings to focus in on one test that would be thrown out of court, out of any actual court for its procedural failings you put a name on someone's testing sample whoop out the door it goes you can't use that as evidence it's been tampered with or the the threat of tampering is so strong they can't use it in court anymore and that's the one they went with no no sir no ma'am that is not how this works so you know again if you didn't like the fact that they didn't come out guns blazing would have been nice, I admit, some kind of statement. But this is a statement. And they went to Josh Saman, which is why he is, frankly, an ally in the media, because he's, a, he's able to get them to open up to maybe me they wouldn't open up to, or maybe someone else they wouldn't open up to. They opened up to Josh, and they gave him, for the Vitor Belfort issue notwithstanding, they gave him some great info, and they're showing great support for Nick Diaz, and they're going far and above and beyond the call of duty for what they need to because the guy was wronged. The guy was totally wrong. And everyone who's ever come out there and been like, well, Nick Diaz broke the rules, you should be embarrassed. You should be embarrassed because you've been wrong from the moment go. And then uh, my favorite truther is back. In the comments, this guy is unbelievable. I've never been. I've, truthers are amazing because they're utterly immune to facts. All right, let's see. One more time here. Is it safe to assume that tough Latin America 2 finale won't do very well? It's in Mexico and on the same day and around the same time slot as Cotto versus Canelo. If you could only watch one, which would you watch? So I am told that the ticket sales in Monterrey, Monterrey are uh, they're not doing very well. I'm told that they're actually doing quite poorly. I don't have any numbers, but someone in the journalism world in Mexico told me that, that they're just not doing particularly well. Um, there are some issues. Everyone was like, you know, hyping up this big Televisa deal. Um, for the most part, as I understand it, and I need to reread the email that was sent to me about it. Um, most UFC content that airs on Televisa airs a week later on tape delay does not air live virtually, virtually all of it 
if not if not a hundred percent, all but maybe two or three events yearly. Um, you have to get UFC Network, and the problem is that it costs as much as a regular cable subscription. So it's not clear what kind of reach it has. The numbers I'm told are not are decent, but not great. So unless you are like a, a star or it's the UFC brand coming in any kind of spectacular way, like a big Mexico City show or something, uh, it's not clear what kind of brand support there is in Mexico right now. I mean, everyone calling Mexico the next Brazil. I keep telling y'all, uh, <laughs> I don't think so. Um, I don't think it'll do poorly in the end. I think the UFC machine is so strong. They have a way of making a success out of just about any event. Not all of them, but a lot of them. So we'll see how it does in the end. But, you know, Cain Velasquez is the big star there. Like, you know, I think there's a question later on about how one guy can get an immediate rematch and, and one guy can't. Cain Velasquez is critical for that market. Critical, you know. Um, they really need him to be able to whip it into shape and move it forward in, in the direction they want to take it. And I'm not saying he can't when he's not champion, but, boy, it makes it a lot easier. So, and you say, by the way, the Latin American 2 finale is Brown, Gastelum, Diego Lamas, and Cejudo Formiga. So it's a decent card, but I'm told that um, it's just not doing all that great at the box office. And if you're asking me which I'm going to watch, <laughs> sorry, folks, I'm going to watch a top-tier Puerto Rican rivalry in boxing 10 times out of 10 over a, a very good, a very good uh, UFC fight night card. Cotto Canelo is huge. It's a huge, huge fight. Um, you know, those Puerto Rican Mexican rivalries are legendary in the sport. And I like Cotto's, excuse me, Canelo's chances, but that's a big, big fight, man. A big fight. Faulty whereabouts app for fighters. Luke, what do you know about the story and why is it important? Uh, not much. I'd rather sort of table that one. Someone says, anything you can tell us about this discussed TBA opponent for Fedor? Uh, no. No, I will not say anything more about it until it becomes fact or I can get a second source to verify it. The one source I had... Uh, how trustworthy is USADA and who pays their bills? And do you think the new medical facility in the UFC builds in Nevada will benefit UFC stars to enhance their fighting against unwanted fighters who are bad for PR and other criteriums the UFC puts in the place? What? Let's go this piece by piece. Do you think the new medical facility... Well, okay. How trustworthy is USADA and who pays their bills? Um, here's, what I would, here's what I would ask you to do. Go back and look at the... Um, Eric Morales situation from USADA a few years ago. Look at the article by Thomas Hauser and then read USADA's reply and then decide for yourself uh, how trustworthy they are. Do you think the new medical facility the UFC builds in Nevada will benefit UFC stars? I, I don't even know what the second question is asking. Uh, okay, what are your thoughts on the UFC and particularly Dana White avoiding the idea of, here we go, of Jose Aldo getting an instant rematch with a loss to McGregor? They're giving Velasquez an instant rematch after what Verdum did to him, and he only defended his belt twice. And Dana even said before that any long-standing champion should get an instant rematch because they can all have off nights and deserve a second chance. And they have done so a number of times. But with Aldo, for some reason, there's a different standard. Dana's answer to fan questions on the matter was, we haven't seen the fight yet. Well, partly I understand yet. I mean, what if... 
Aldo goes in there and just gets the doors blown off of him, but like in a worse way than Cain Velasquez did, you know, just completely controlled, you know, would he get a rematch? I still think no matter what, he would get a rematch. Okay, number one. But number two, never discount what the factors are here. Um, McGregor defending a title in Ireland is big for them. And even if it's against Aldo or anybody else, that's sort of where the gravitational pull is going. And I just, I just mentioned before, Cain Velasquez in Mexico is a hugely important relationship. And they, I don't, again, I don't think, I don't know if they need Velasquez to be champion, but man, it makes it a lot better if he, if he is. And there's also so much, you know, a situation here for Velasquez that I think still needs to be acknowledged. Everyone kind of mocks the idea of sea level Cain. It's real. A two-year layoff, like the one Rashad Evans is coming back from, a two-year layoff with knee injuries, and then you're fighting at altitude? That's a, that's a lot to ask of somebody, man. It's a lot to ask of somebody. And they don't give anyone in the UFC tune-up fights who are champions coming off from injury. In some ways, Cruz losing his belt and getting the Mizugaki fight is a blessing in disguise. Um, and so you just have these weird, aberrant performances. Do I think that's the best Cain Velasquez? No. Do I think he, he'll beat, you know, Fabricio Verdun the second time? I don't know. But here's what I do know. I bet you it's going to be a lot more competitive. Bet you it's going to be a lot more competitive the second time. So I I, I don't think that's all that unreasonable. You know, but I, I just think that, you know, Aldo's been champion so long. Dana's saying, let's see the fight. Okay, because he doesn't want to commit to anything. I, I understand that. But I would be shocked if he didn't get a rematch. I, I, I suspect that if he loses, there's one coming. They just have, there's too much bad b- blood between them, you know. And that, that means money, you know. Let's go to tw- the Twitter machine. Let's see what the questions are. Uh, who should Horaguchi fight next? Dodson, Sahuda Formiga winner, Benavidez versus Bagotinov winner? Yes, the Benavidez Bagotinov winner. I like that one the most. Uh, let's see. Someone says, Did one of the managers write that Johnny versus Woodley question? LOL. I don't think so, but. Uh, thoughts on EFN being on Fight Pass and could it be bigger than 1FC? I think it's good for Fight Pass and I don't think it'll be bigger than 1FC. It's, it won't even be close. If Barrow does well at 145 and Aldo loses to McGregor, will Aldo move up to 155? Very possible. Very possible. But I, I still think that if Aldo wins, there might be another rematch. If Aldo loses, I'm pretty sure there's going to be another rematch. They might have two fights with each other before any kind of switch is made. I've been hearing a lot about some, a lot about some Cat Sage Northcut. Is the hype real? The hype is real as it relates to his striking. In terms of his overall MMA ability, there's still a lot of questions that remain unanswered. Um, but we'll see. Always the dark horse in the title race has Musasi's chance for a title shot definitely passed. What's next for him? Well, that was a devastating loss for him. An absolutely devastating loss. I, I don't want to be so quick to say that, that he'll never get a title shot again. It'll never happen. But it is going to be very, very difficult to come by. He has moved himself into not too dissimilar territory to Michael Bisping, which is to say, obviously, Musasi was a previous champ. I don't mean that. I mean, are you that guy who can beat all the guys you need to except all the other guys you need to? Um that's sort of where he finds himself at this point. Couldn't be Jacare, couldn't even beat Uriah Hall, although, you know, you could say luck or whatever. He, he lost. He had a chance to beat him, and he didn't. And so now he finds himself in a place where you can match him up with a lot of middleweights, and he's going to steamroll him. But against an upper-tier level, you know, maybe it's the knee surgeries, maybe it's the age, maybe it's the accumulated miles from years of training. 
whatever it is, he finds himself in a very, very, very difficult predicament. Very difficult predicament. What is your stance on the legitimacy of Cormier's belt? Paper champ or no? Um, I like the idea of treating Cormier as the undisputed champion. Should he fight John Jones again, assuming he gets past Gustafson? Um, I would pick Jones to win probably. But uh, I don't look at him as some sort of fraud. I don't really feel like that's very fitting. I know what people are saying. Well, he only has the title because Jones is not there. Okay, fine. I don't. Uh, I don't deny it. But there's just a big part of me that feels like when a guy is stripped of a title and then they leave, and the division moves on without them, and one guy asserts himself, we owe him the courtesy of treating him as the guy in charge until things change, and he's the guy in charge. Now maybe Gustafson changes that, and maybe you get your Gustafson Jones rematch. I don't know, but. For me, I understand all the arguments. Well, it's you know, it's only this because of that. Yeah, okay, fine, all true. I would never try and talk you out of it, but at the same time, it, um, I, I am personally uncomfortable with not treating him with the reverence that the the waist around his, that the belt around his waist deserves. Uh, I'm not surprised, but I'm disappointed with the John Jones case. I hope they don't announce Jones versus DC Gus right after UFC 192. Here's what I suspect. They won't do that. I would be shocked if they did that. What I do think will happen is that if Cormier wins, or really even if Gustafson wins, the winner's going to get out there and say, John Jones, you're next. Uh, where are you at? Stop hiding. I know you're ready, blah, blah, blah. You know, some sort of like, ooh, kind of your mama thing. And that the wheels on that train will begin to move. If in, you know, what, where it eventually stops, I don't know, April? Before then, New York City? I don't know. But that's sort of what I expect. But I don't think Jones will be in attendance. I don't think Jones will be, you know, um, brought out to the cage or something like that. I think it'll be a very quiet moment for him, wherever he is. But it will it will get the train on the tracks moving. Luke, what impact do you think Random Marcos moving to TriStar will have on her career? can only be good, but these sorts of things... Um, are impossible to determine. Again, I mentioned before, like if I moved, just me, Luke the Donk, if I moved to AKA, how good of a fighter would I be? Well, I'd probably be the best fighter I could be, but how good is that? Probably not very good. Right. The only thing that offends me that Luke says is about people who use A1 steak sauce. I love it. Well, you have the palate of a toddler because steak... There is no such thing as a good steak that needs steak sauce, A1 steak sauce. A1 steak sauce is only for people who burn their steaks and have to put flavor back in because they burned it out, or their toddlers who just put it on, like, you know, <laughs> on their ground beef or something. Like, there's there's, there's literally, like, if you, if you cook a steak properly, oil, salt, vinegar, and you cook it properly, what am I saying, salt, vinegar? Oil, salt, and pepper. Sorry, oil, salt, and pepper. If you put anything else on it, that's you're 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 doing it wrong. You are doing it wrong. Uh, okay, I mean, there's different kinds of marinades, but a one is just, I mean, trash. You might as well just like take the trash out of your home, pick it up, and dump it in your mouth, then put a one on top. Like, it, all right. 
someone said two days ago, it's drink a beer day, unless, of course, it's an IPA. There's a no, well, IPAs I would not put on the same level as A1. Uh, A1 is like malt liquor, but malt liquor gets you drunk. A1 just tastes bad. All right. Uh, has there been any internal employees who have jumped ship to Bellator from UFC now that Coker there? Yes. One of the guys in the video department, I forget his name. I think one of the guys who used to do the countdown shows or the guy who did the opening thing on the pay-per-views where they sit and they talk and they're like, hey, I'm going to win this fight tonight. And then the gladiator stuff plays uh, or face the pain. I think that guy jumped to Bellator. Yes. Someone says, please make sure you answer the Aldo Venom sponsorship question on the website. Okay, let me see if I can find it. Uh, will you see? Will we see John Jones back by UFC 200? I think so. All right, Aldo Venom sponsorship. Venom may decide not to renew the sponsorship with Aldo due to the lack of TV time. Doesn't this confirm that sponsors do not value the fighters, but rather being on UFC broadcasts, and therefore the UFC should have a say on what sponsors are shown on TV, i.e. Reebok. The fighters, outside of a few, let's say Ronda or Connor, uh, really command, do the fighters really command top dollar? I'm sure the tough Brazil finalists on UFC 190 could have made top dollar having sponsors, but that is just capitalizing on Ronda and the UFC. In addition, under the pre-Reebok deal, fighters selling sponsorships uh, to appear in UFC broadcasts are probably undercutting UFC efforts as sponsors who do not want to pay the UFC's rate can get their logo on air through the fighters instead. They're asking for a lower rate. Well, they have to pay a sponsor tax, but okay. Wouldn't this reduce income to the organization, including the pool of paid fighters? So this is an excellent question because this is what I've been talking about all along. All of the arguments about, well, we want a cleaner look and, you know, this is another step forward for the sport because we take away the NASCARization. These are not real arguments. The real argument is that the UFC looked around and they said there is a lot of money to be made here. And we can make a credible claim, and I think they're right. We can make a credible claim that what people are paying for is airtime on our broadcasts vis-a-vis the fighters. They're not sponsoring the fighters. They're they're sponsoring the time a fighter takes up on the screen during one of our broadcasts. Because as you note, once you remove them from that, they lose their interest in the sponsorship. They're sponsoring airtime. And so the UFC is saying, well, wait a second, that's our money to be made. And moreover, let's think about this. If we had a uniform deal, we could make eventually money off of that, especially as I've noted before, with a third party adding to that Reebok jersey. So imagine again. So so for example, you see this one, the one I'm wearing, it's Fly Emirates, right? Fly Emirates. So Fly Emirates pays for this. So this is an Adidas jersey for Real Madrid. This is the FIFA World Cup thing. Um but Fly Emirates pays for it. You've seen the Barcelona jersey. It's got the Qatar Airways. So imagine if that was Verizon on the Reebok kit, right? That You couldn't get Verizon before. Now you can. Remember, if they put on another logo on there, a Verizon or a Sears or a Volkswagen or, or whatever, fighters don't get a cut of that. All that money goes to the UFC. So that's all money they get to keep for themselves. And their argument, and again, I think it's a good one. We're creating this space. We should be able to have a say on it. And I think they're right. I think they're right. Here's the problem. Here's the question you noted. Venom may decide not to renew their sponsorship without a due to lack of a TV time. Doesn't this confirm that sponsors do not value the fighters, but rather being on UFC broadcasts, and therefore the UFC should have a say on what sponsors are shown on TV? The answer to that question is yes. Here's the flip side to the argument. 
I think all of that is true. I think the UFC is right when they say if you lose your sponsor because you get kicked off of our broadcast and they walk away, that proves they were just monetizing us, not you. I think they're right. They're 100% right. The problem is if the fighters got together and they said, okay, how about if we remove ourselves from your broadcast? Now what are you going to do? Well, then all the sponsorship deals go away for them too. You see, so it works hand in hand. It is true that no individual fighter except for a few like Ronda or Connor or whatever, can sell Game of War app on their phone or Hardee's or Carl's Jr. Terrible food. Uh, you know, only Ronda can do that or only Connor can do that because they're popular beyond things. And, and many in, the, in that UFC broadcast, they're just wearing stuff, um, trying to, you know, circumvent the UFC process just by getting on an individual fighter. That's all true. But if the fighter said without us, you don't have a chance to opt to, to monetize anything. You don't have a chance to have any advertising. You don't have the chance for any kind of sponsorship deal. So we believe this should be a more equitable trade. That's the ideal arrangement. It's not the idea that the UFC said, we deserve to have a pretty decent chunk of this. We're getting kind of cut out of here. And whether one's creating this market, I have no problem with that argument. None. I think it's very strong. What I have is that them dictating the entire terms of everything and then forcing it on them, including if they get a Fly Emirates, if they get a Verizon, the fighters don't get a cut of that. That, to me, is where I object. It's not to the idea that they're creating this market. It's the idea of that the fighters help make the market a reality. Right? The two are working hand in hand. One doesn't work without the other. If you take away the UFC, what are the fighters going to monetize? And if you take away the fighters, what is the UFC going to monetize? They need each other. So the terms of the deal should be made in accordance with that reality. It shouldn't be one side, be it all fighters or be it all UFC, dictating to the other. That's the objection. Um, we answered this one last week. What would stop other commissions from giving Nick a license to fight in their state? Let's see. Oh, I don't fucking have any more of that, man. That's like drinking a four loco with no alcohol. Like, what is the point? Someone says, uh, you know, okay, let's say Nick Diaz went to New Jersey and got licensed and fought there under the UFC. Um, someone says, wouldn't the other consequence possibly be that NSAC could punish the UFC as a promoter for promoting Nick Diaz? Or is it simply an empty threat because the UFC is simply too big to punish? Thoughts? Yeah, I'm not sure how that would work because they have a license in Nevada as well. Um, and then they've just sort of ignored not that license because they have a license as a promoter in New Jersey as well. But uh, it's a good question. I really don't know. Clearly what we know is that it's too much of a threat for the UFC to risk it. I, I don't know. I don't know that they hold it. I don't know what grounds on which they would punish them if they ignore their ban and went ahead and competed in another state. That's not illegal necessarily, but it's a good question. And the answer is I simply don't know. hilarious question on there that is uh not safe for work so i can't do it luke do you think the petition for nick diaz can reach a hundred thousand signatures with one last push from the media i don't know uh 
Uh, Stephen Miocic, Luke, what do you make of Dana White saying Miocic needs to become more popular to get a title shot? I will say that it is entirely regrettable and entirely believable that he said that. And the reality of the world in which we live. A, a title fight is a big fight. A title fight goes on pay-per-views or rarely on Fox. If you look at the way they structure their shows. For them to do that, they have to have a strong promotional incentive for the most part. At least that's the way they've decided to run their business. And if you look at that reality, you can bemoan it. And I don't think it's awesome, but it's the way it is. There's got to be some push behind you. Um, Cyborg was recently randomly tested. Was it USADA or the Athletic Commission? It was the Athletic Commission. All right, someone says, last question, we'll go. Do you expect Gus to try to implement a two-on-one risk control strategy versus DC? It was effective for Jones and recently Barnett. Taking someone's hand out of the fight is very effective at frustrating your opponent and can create openings for big shots in close range. It can also break someone mentally, especially against the cage. Barnett used various forms of this technique over the weekend, and since Gus has more power than Jones, uh, slightly, yes, do you think he has the grip to pull this off? Grip strength and punch strength are two different things. Two different things. And if you think that let – let me explain something to you. Alexander Gustafson cannot grip fight as well in the same context as John Jones. In other words, if you ask John Jones to go grip fight someone, and I want you – here's the game plan, go do that. And then you ask Gustafson, same game plan, same opponent, Gus, go do it. John Jones is a much better grip fighter. A much better grip fighter. I don't know about in the gi, maybe, but certainly no gi. So this idea that, like, well, he's got more power in his punch, so therefore his grips are as good. Gripping is not just strength. Gripping is a lot of technique. A lot of technique. How you place your shoulder into the punch or into the into the grip. How you use your thumb. Where on it you grip. At the moment at which you grip. How you set up the grip to go push across. How you set it up to go... Um, underhanded overhand because you push and then pull out for an arm drag how you yank how you pull it's so important grip fighting even in nogi context is its own set of skills that are loosely and i mean loosely correlated with punching power so there you go keep that in mind do i think that gustafson can grip fight as well as john jones did against daniel cormier not on your life that's what i think okay that being said we have to go we are just moments away here, I think, from Real Madrid's game, if I'm not mistaken. Um, this will be on iTunes very soon. This will be on SoundCloud very soon. You can email me at luke.thomas at sbnation.com or at Thomas. Don't forget to read my column, Five Lessons from the John Jones Probation and uh, Punishment. And, um, yeah, thanks for your support. I appreciate you watching. Until next time, holla Madrid and enjoy the fights. And stay frosty.